this week continues. I want to say that I'm most encouraged by the excitement I see in the student body for you all to be ready for this weekend that's ahead. And uh, we just hosted a lunch in church relations yesterday out there in the lobby. We had 30 local church pastors here. And I can say on, on behalf of Harry and myself and Lucas Aliman in church relations that those pastors are blessed and excited to have you students in their churches and coming to work for them. So what a great partnership we have going at this school between uh, Masters University and your ministries in local churches. This past Monday, Paul Twist came and encouraged us to be motivated in our ministry by the greatness of the gospel. You probably remember that message, at least for the fact that he's had the best accent up here so far in all the speakers, and I'm quite aware of my own Pittsburgh colloquialisms that shine forth, uh, not in anything to be admired and repeated when you listen to a guy like Paul Twist speak. Uh, the only thing that I could say is, I don't think anybody can get away with using the word twee in a message and still have respect from the audience when he talked about a twee message. And I think if I used that word twee growing up in Pittsburgh, I just got punched in the mouth for using the word twee. But Paul did highlight that the gospel is serious business. And he did say it's no twee message. It's nothing to be trifled with because he broke it down for us on Monday that the greatness of the gospel is great because of both its message of judgment, that what, what would we have to hope in if all we knew of was the judgment of God? And it's a serious message, and it's one that when, and as Paul said it, the gospel is good news, but for those that receive it, for not, if you don't receive the gospel, then it's not good news. It pronounces judgment on the person that has heard that there is a holy God, and he expects holiness from his creation. Yet, he balanced that out by the greatness of the gospel in salvation. That as much as there are the horrors of hell and damnation, we bring the happiness of heaven to the ears of the people that we preach the gospel to because we tell them that they can be saved. And so Twist, Mr. Twist, reminded us of the sobering seriousness of the gospel message and the great hope that we offer with it. And so it's fitting in outreach week that we would start the week with that as, as we look across the scope of Scripture. And he took us to the Old Testament, matched it to the book of Mark, and said all throughout the Bible we hear this great message of salvation that would motivate us to tell people about it. And a great motivation to start, and I want to pick up on the idea of motivation for ministry as Outreach Week looms, and not just for Outreach Week, but in general to motivate us to ministry, not just in the greatness of the message that we hear in the gospel, but also how that message transforms us, what it does to our hearts to change us and make us ministers of the gospel, not just in what we say, but in our deeds. And so we're going to be in Luke 10 today, but before we get there, you could start turning. I want to talk about being motivated in life, because I think everyone has something that motivates them. Everyone has something that motivates them, particularly in doing things we're not naturally inclined to do. We all have something that would motivate us to say, I don't feel like doing that, but whatever it is that's... That, I don't want to do about that. There's some motivation I have to get over myself and do it. For me right now, it's exercise. Uh, my, my playing days are behind me, and I'm just not motivated to exercise right now. My exercise is, well, I was going to say walking to work because I re live really close, but I have yet to even do that. <laughs> I mean, I could lift for free at this gym, but I've been there twice and once just to watch Sports Center because I didn't have cable yet. So I, my, my motivation to exercise is an all-time low right now. 
Now, when I played sports back in high school and college, the motivation was obvious. It was to perform. It was to get out there and, and do well and win a game and all that goes with that. But I'm a has-been, so I have no motivation for sports, except this week I was invited to play in a celebrity basketball game here. I think it takes place sometime towards the end of the month, and I heard about the legend of Harry Walls from last year's game. Uh, yeah, there was the audience. Did you hear that, Harry? Yeah, there's some high expectations. Well, so I've heard about the legend of Harry Walls participating, and I thought, you know, it wouldn't look good on me working for Harry in church relations if I didn't say, yes, I would play in this game. And though reluctant, I've agreed, and now I have a motivation to work out, at least for two weeks. And really, it's not a motivation born out of, I actually want to go and win this game. I don't even know who's playing in it besides myself and Harry, hopefully some other people, but because he would definitely beat me one-on-one -on -one by far. Uh, but I'm not really motivated to win in the game or even to score a basket. I haven't played basketball since, uh, I mean, competitively in front of an audience since 1996 when I was a sophomore in high school. And it was an inglorious ending to my career. The, the ha at halftime, the coach actually came in and said, guys, why are you passing the ball to Ashoff? <laughs> Two things will happen. It's, it's going to hit him and go off of his knee out of bounds, or he'll get it, and missed the shot. I mean, there's no purpose. And I just sat there and took it. It's kind of like, he's, he's really right. <laughs> so, you know, my only motivation in even getting ready to exercise for this game is to avoid humiliation. But that's enough for me. I'm motivated to not be humiliated, that I can at least run up and down the court and not be out of breath. And so, in life, motivation drives us in all areas, and I would venture to say, particularly in ministry. Though we would like to think our hearts are so inclined to serve God and to minister the gospel to others and to reflect the love of Christ to others and to, and to be willing to be used for him. I would like to think we just have this natural motivation to do that. We have the Holy Spirit in us, yet at times I find myself not motivated to minister. And what I want to do today is motivate us by way of loving other people and seeing in the gospel an example of that in Luke 10 that motivation for serving others does start and is rooted in a heart of compassion, which first starts in realizing what God has done for us by his grace. And I hopefully we will see that this morning. So if you're in Luke 10, you could follow along as I read the good story of the Good Samaritan. You're probably well familiar with it. We'll start in verse 25, because that's what sets the context. Luke 10, verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring his oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will return, and I will repay you. 
Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Well, if you have heard the phrase Good Samaritan, used frequently in our American culture as a catch-all phrase for an act of goodwill towards someone else, an act of benevolence, somebody being charitable or helpful. In fact, if you Google Good Samaritan, you'll get 11.8 million hits. So you got a wide range of meaning for the term Good Samaritan. And even if you try to narrow it down and say, okay, you know, there's definitions for that and explanations for that, but if you just go to Google and you Google Good Samaritan and then you click on news and see where that phrase Good Samaritan has come up in news articles, there's hundreds of thousands of news articles constantly being written using that phrase Good Samaritan. And I'll read a few to say, okay, how does our culture define what a good Samaritan is or does. Here's a couple of examples of real-life descriptions of good Americans stolen from the headlines. Good Samaritan helps police nab burglary suspect. Good Samaritan rescues man from capsized boat off Galveston coast. Good Samaritan shot trying to stop kidnapping by illegal immigrant. Good Samaritan and family dollar employees take down attempted robber. Good Samaritan saves people from sinking jeep. Good Samaritan rescues puppy thrown from car window. Sometimes the Good Samaritan can have bad things happen to them. Man arrested over truck stolen from Good Samaritan. And sometimes Good Samaritans can also be armed Samaritans. This headline, Good Samaritan pulls gun to stop McDonald's dispute. <laughs> I just had to read about that one, so quick story. There's a couple, they get into an altercation in a McDonald's somewhere in the Midwest. Of course, it wouldn't happen around here, but McDonald's is the hub of life out there somewhere, and these two people are in a dispute. Uh, it gets a little bit violent. Somebody's getting pushed against the wall, and I'll just read straight from the headline. That's when another man who was walking into McDonald's intervened. So this guy just jumps right in. The man had military experience and described himself as a good Samaritan who was concerned a physical assault was about to take place. He had a permit to carry his concealed weapon. He lifted up his shirt, showed the gun, and the altercation ended. <laughs> so, yeah, I get what those applause is about. But if you just read those headlines and didn't know what the Bible says or sets the context for Good Samaritan, you'd wonder, really, what is a Good Samaritan? Is it a superhero person? They rescue puppies and people in sinking jeeps? Is it some, it would sound more to me like a vigilante, stopping burglaries, pulling a gun to settle a dispute, which, I mean, just the irony of that. The good Samaritan pulls his gun. Stop fighting. Give him the chicken nuggets right now. <laughs> and, and give me a few while you're at it. Because of the vast applications of the phrase good Samaritan, it may be confusing for some, because if it means everything, then essentially it means nothing. Because you can just throw Good Samaritan on any act of benevolence or vigilante justice. But the reason I want to look at this today in connection to Outreach Week is after hearing about the greatness of the gospel on Monday, I want to zoom in to see a Christian's attitude of compassion, motivated by what God has done for them, lived out for the glory of God and the sake of the gospel. I want to show us today that if we're all in for the gospel of Jesus Christ, if Christ is all to us, yes, what Paul preached on Monday 
The greatness of the gospel motivates us to preach the gospel and tell other people about the good news, but it doesn't end with that. There is also an accompanying lifestyle that shows the effect of the gospel in our lives. Furthermore, shows the effect that we have the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit living in us and changing us to be more like Christ, and we'll see that in today's story of the Good Samaritan. And we'll see that loving others is a primary manifestation or expression of our love for God. It's undeniable. And we'll see that today. So I've outlined the sermon pretty simply, uh, and I will go back to 25 to set the context that this whole parable of the Good Samaritan starts back in verse 25 and goes to verse 29 with one major question. So we'll start there before we even get to the parable. What's the big question that sets off this interaction? Well, look in verse 25. It starts with a lawyer who stands up to put Jesus to the test. Now, that's just never a good idea when that's the opening line about you. You stand up to put Jesus to the test. And he asks a question. At least he calls him teacher. Shows an element of humility there. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you may be wondering here, this lawyer, uh, what type of lawyer is he? He's not a lawyer as we would think in the terms. He would be a scribe. He would be somebody that was an expert in the Old Testament that hung around the synagogue where Jesus would often be teaching. And that probably is why he's in the audience here, because in chapter 10, the audience is the disciples of Jesus Christ. If you look at chapter 10, Jesus had sent the 70 plus disciples out on a mission. They had come back. Verse 17, in chapter 10, it says, the 70 returned with joy. They were pumped up because they're doing the ministry now. They've been following around Jesus for a while, and he sends them out. He commissions them. They're back. They're excited. I mean, they were on, if you look at verse 16, they were on his mission. Jesus had said, look, if people are rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And so they're, they're his ambassadors. This is the first time he's sent these disciples out, and they're returning saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in our name, implying that people are being changed. They're going out preaching the good news of the gospel, and, and things are happening. And yet Jesus brings them back down to earth, I think, in a moment of trying to keep them humble early on. Uh, and he basically says, verse 18, 19, look, I've, I've seen this all before. I'm the one with the true authority. You're on borrowed authority. And then verse 20, like any good teacher, really tells them and shows them, guys, this is what it's really all about. Look at verse 20 and 10. He says, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. So prior to this lawyer asking a question about eternal life, he was probably in the audience and heard something about the idea of heaven or eternal life. Now Jesus is bringing his disciples back down to earth, his true followers, and telling them, look, it's kind of like uh, when, when guys get excited, and I remember this from playing football, you know, we go out into a game and maybe we get a first down. Now for my inglorious career in the teams I played for, getting a first down was a big deal. I'm just talking like one first down. So we might come back to the huddle like high-fiving, let's call a timeout, let's talk about the first down. And coach would like settle us down and be like, guys, there is an entire game left to play. You have one first down. I know, but we're so bad. This is so good. We actually got a first down. It's true. So Jesus is kind of bringing his disciples back down to earth here, saying, I know you guys are excited. The first mission went well, but you have a long, long mission in front of you. And let me remind you what this is all about. It's not really about you. It's what's been done to you, verse 20. Rejoice, rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And 
He's basically telling them, look, the greatest thing about doing gospel ministry, first and foremost, is that you can do gospel ministry because God has done something in your life. So when Paul Twist comes on Monday to remind us of the greatness of the gospel, I hope that was the starting point, not just for Outreach Week, but maybe a reminder that encouraged your heart, the greatness of the gospel message, that has changed you. Because what that does, one, it grounds us and reminds us what we were apart from God, but it also motivates us moving forward to say, this is all privilege, isn't it? Ministry. If you're going to last in doing ministry, and not just for the pastors or the potential pastors in the room. Any person that says, hey, if I'm to remain here, if live as Christ and die as gain, and it's for me to remain down here and not go to be with Christ, I got ministry in front of me the rest of my life. How am I going to keep going, moving forward? It's going to be remembering that gospel ministry is a privilege. How do I remember the gospel ministry is a privilege? I remember what the gospel did for me. And then you're motivated by grace, which is a far greater motivation than guilt. Oh, I have to do this, or else I'm not a good enough Christian, or else I won't, whatever, you, fill in the blank. And we can be motivated that way. But when grace motivates us to help us see that all ministry is a privileged ministry because of who we represent and that we were changed by it. We were this, but now we are that. And so this lawyer stands up cued in that Jesus is talking to his disciples about eternal life or heaven and asks the question, hey, what shall I do? And there could be a bit of presumption in this, everybody around knowing he's a lawyer. What shall I do? Because I see what your disciples are doing out there. But what about me? How, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers him. Verse 26, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? He turns it back around on the lawyer. And he knows, he knows, the lawyer knows the Old Testament well enough to probably get this question correct. Now, if there was any amount of humility in this lawyer, if he was genuinely wondering, how do I inherit eternal life, even though Jesus returns, serve, and says, well, what's it read to you? If he was humble, he would probably ask another question like, well, you are the Son of God. Only you could answer this question for me. But he doesn't. He thinks, okay, this is my time to shine. And he says in verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus responds to him in verse 28, you've answered correctly. I mean, the guy gets it. He would be potentially excited at this point thinking, you know what? I just showed to everybody around here, I know my Bible. I know how to get eternal life. Jesus said and now this respect he has for him is he's a rabbi, he's a teacher, he's showing him some respect. But if he had true respect for him as the son of God, he wouldn't have been the one to answer this question. He would have really earnestly wanted to know, no, you, Jesus, should be telling me how I get this eternal life. But he answers it himself. Jesus turns around and says, you've answered correctly. And he's thinking, I nailed it. But then Jesus adds this one twee little line. Just seeing if you're paying attention. Verse 28, we'll do this and you will live. And immediately there, he is pricking the conscience of the prideful lawyer. Because he doesn't make it at this point about what the lawyer knows about eternal life. As in intellectual knowledge. He's saying do this and you will live to set him up on the horns of a dilemma. It's always 
where we have to, we get a true self-examination of who we are when we're on this horns of a dilemma. By Jesus saying, do this and you will live now, he has one of two choices. When Jesus, I mean, when this guy says, hey, I, I know what it is. It's to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, which is basically the summation of all the law. And then Jesus turns around and says, okay, do this and you'll live. There's your eternal life. He has two options. One option is, is to say, well, I can't. So can you explain to me how I can so I can have eternal life then? Because I can't do this. I mean, he could admit to his own sinfulness that he can't do this and live. He can't perfectly fulfill this law of loving God with everything he has and then loving everyone else in the same way, taking that love and bending it to others. So that could be option A, is the humble path to admit his own fallenness, but option two we see in verse 29. Instead of saying that he can't measure up to perfection, admitting he needs a righteousness that's not his own, what does he say in 29? Wishing to justify himself. And there's where self-righteousness, self-justification comes into his life, and I would venture to say in my life and in anyone's life, when we are put on that horns of a dilemma, where does our righteousness lie? Where is it at? Where does it come from? How did it originate? And how will it continue in my life? The gospel brings us back to it's a righteousness that's alien to me. It's imputed to me. John Bunyan, in his glorious testimony of becoming a Christian, wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, said the moment of his conversion was when he said it was if I looked to heaven and saw that my righteousness was there and no longer down here that I understood what it meant to be born again, that God opened my eyes to see the truth of the gospel. He would answer, my righteousness is in heaven. And for any of us, when we want to justify ourselves, we would ask a question that would allow us to then, okay, I can wiggle around this fact of perfectly keeping the law of God by deflecting it to some minor point, like in this scenario. Okay, well then, who's my neighbor? Because he can't ask the question, who's God? I mean, he would be immediately out of the synagogue if he doesn't know who God is. And if he says something like, well, what is love? Really? You can ask that question there. What, is, what does it mean to love? He would just say, well, you just said it. You love with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you love your neighbor as yourself. So the only possible you know, detail he can maybe let himself off the hook here is to try to justify himself by saying, well, if you just tell me who my neighbor is, then I can check mark that box in my self-righteousness and I'm getting eternal life, right? I just earned my way in. So Jesus replies in verse 30, and this is where we move from a question to a simple illustration. Jesus is going to answer his statement with an illustration of the Good Samaritan. And this statement is to help show him that it's really not about who his neighbor is. It's about who he is. Because built into this story, a little background on a lawyer back then, or a, a good religious Jew, would be that they had people in their mind that they presupposed God truly loved, Israel, and then everybody else was kind of out there, the Gentiles, and those really weren't righteous people, so do we really have to love those people? Can't we just love the people that we like? And that's good enough? So Jesus is going to tell a story 
that's not so much about the neighbor. So let's walk through this story quickly and learn what he's trying to teach here. First, Jesus replied and said, and I love this because right on the heels of, and who is my neighbor, the first thing this guy's going to hear back, a man. I mean, that's just, I love the brilliance of Jesus' response. This guy's looking for specifics. And Jesus just says in a most nondescript fashion, a man. No background on that. Not saying anything about where he was from, what group he was with, what tribe, what, whatever it was. He just says, a man. And then he says, and he starts to tell the story. So we'll pull out some details to give it life. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And that distance was about 17 miles. It was a drop in elevation of about 3,000 feet. So as I was Googling things that I like to Google while I write sermons, I was trying to figure out how far away is that and what's it equivalent to. It would be approximately the distance between here and Grace Community Church, except three times the elevation change. And this road from Jerusalem to Jericho wasn't nice and spacious like the lanes of the 5 freeway, as dangerous as those are in their own right. This would be more like taking the old road. You ever driven the old road down there? That's the worst. I mean, you go underneath the freeway, and you get, especially at night, you feel like some big truck full of rocks, because there's those big rock trucks down there, is just going to pull out and smash you, and nobody will know you even under there. And imagine if your car broke down, and you had to walk the old road the rest of the way to Grace Church. You would just feel like, this is a little bit dangerous. So picture yourself going down that road. You might sense a little bit of danger in this story. Jerusalem to Jericho, and he falls among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. There is just an abruptness to telling this story, setting it up. He's stripped down, he's beat down, and he's went away, leaving him halfway between life and death. Now, it's key that he doesn't say he leaves him dead, because then that would justify a holy person walking by and not wanting to be unholy, touching a dead person. But it says he's half dead, so there's, he's moving around, he's doing something enough to signify that he is still alive, and he certainly could use some love. Verse 31, and by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So the two holy men of the day, the two people that the lawyer would identify with, and think they're going to do something about this, they see it, and move on. Not much difference between the two stories, whether it's the priest or his assistant, the Levite, both holy men of the day, had their reasons for not stopping and helping. And we don't get the details because parables aren't meant to be complex when Jesus tells them. The simplicity of this is, look, they had a chance to respond in love, and they didn't do it, for whatever reason it was. But, verse 33, and this is the part of the story that would flip everything upside down for the lawyer who was trying to justify himself. He says, but a Samaritan. Now a little background there, there was hostility between Jews and Samaritans. It went back between the dividing of the kingdom and the Jews that lived up in the area of Samaria. Whenever the Assyrians came in, foreigners came in to live there, they intermarried with them, and with intermarrying with foreigners, they adopted some of their pagan religious practices. A little bit of the Old Testament got turned around, And so these were just considered half-breed people, different from the pure Jews who had the pure religion, and they didn't like them because of it. So a couple hundred years later, you see it in the story in John 4, the Samaritan woman at the well. She's wondering, why is this Jew talking to me? And then you might even see it. Just look back to chapter 9. Right before the disciples had returned, 
Jesus is with his closer cohort of disciples. Look at Luke 9.52. He sent some of his messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for Jesus. What happens? The Samaritans didn't receive him because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. And listen to these nice guys. Verse 54. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I mean, what great guys here. Burn them up because they didn't offer you hospitality. Underneath that was that hostility between Jew and Samaritan. So much so that James and John just thought, wouldn't it be right, God? These, you, you don't, God doesn't love these people anyways. Why don't we just burn them up? They turned you down. So that just kind of gives you a little bit of background on this hostility. So back in our story, a Samaritan, this guy would have been, wait a second, this guy's in the story now? Because I thought the hero of this story was going to be maybe a guy like me. You know, the priest walks by, the Levite walks by, but then the lawyer comes and saves the day. No, quite the opposite. The Samaritan comes, who was on a journey, so we get from that detail. He was the only guy we know in the story that might have had somewhere to go. He was was heading somewhere. Verse 33, a Samaritan was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, and here's the key, he felt compassion. And there's the motivation out of just this natural sense of compassion, which, connected to verse 27, would be a basic description of loving your neighbor as yourself. Your first response in this situation would be to see it and say, oh man, that's, I gotta help this person. Because they're a human being. They're created in God's image just like me. That could be me laying down right there. He sees him, he feels compassion, and then that compassion motivates the action. Verse 34 and 35, and we detailed that before. He goes all out to help this man. He takes care of him physically, tries to get him healed up. He uses his own donkey to put him on, to take him to an inn. Uses his own money to help him out and says, look, if if any other costs to you, I'll come back for it. So we see this guy is willing to be interrupted in his time because he was on a journey headed somewhere. He was not worried about his own safety. If you just saw a guy laying there and he just got, I mean, he was gasping for life and you could tell he'd been robbed, you might also keep walking by because you think that I might be next. So he puts his own safety on the line and then his own stuff, what mattered to him. He he uses what he had with him to take care of this guy above and beyond. So what would this have told the lawyer about what it means to love a neighbor? It's that it's lavish, it's unbelievable, it's sacrificial. And it's a perfect illustration to show that loving your neighbor is not determining who specifically to love or not, but out of gratitude for God loving us and showing grace to us, we are motivated to bend that grace and that love and that mercy and that compassion to other people. It's, it's a beautiful, simple story in this. That it just clearly frames, look, it's not about the details of the man, who the neighbor is. Give me a description. Just how, how, how down and out is he? It's a description of the person who responds. The hard-hearted Levite. The hard-hearted priest who just sees this guy and walks by. And then the compassionate Samaritan, which by the way, I would say if you know, I don't know why the Good Samaritan is in the headings of your Bible. I think the Compassionate Samaritan would be a more fitting title. Because this is not so much as about being good as it is about being compassionate. About 
sensing God has done something so good for me, so loving to me, so compassionate to me, I express my gratitude and love back to him in the way that I express it out there to others. Which brings us to one last command. To end the story, verse 36, Jesus now finishes the story, turns to the lawyer and says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And notice how he changed the scenario with the question. He said, who's my neighbor, the lawyer asks. Jesus says, well, who proves to be the neighbor? Who has the compassion and the action that shows they get what loving your neighbor is all about? And, I mean, you just read the verse 37. I just see his head lowering down. And he can't even bring himself to say, the Samaritan. The lawyer responds, the one who showed mercy toward him. And there was his answer for who his neighbor is. It's anyone that has any need at any time that you have the means to respond to, thereby proving that you are the actor in the story. You are the neighbor. You are the one taking the love of God. And if you've been changed by him, expressing that out to someone else. It's a simple message that we love others out of a gratitude that God has first loved us. And that takes us back to the greatness of the gospel, and and that motivates us in telling the gospel to others and also expressing the love of Christ to others as we go with the gospel message. So I want to just conclude with a few takeaways about compassion as we round out our motivation for outreach week, but in general, living out the Christian life because evangelism and telling others of the good news, the greatness of the gospel was covered Monday, but outreach week and the Christian life is also composed of acts of service and ministry helping others in need. It's composed of fellowship. And so I just want to talk about compassion, a few things that I think we take away from this story to hang our hats on today and and pray about as God would apply them in our lives. The first one is this. Compassion starts with an action from God. Compassion in this story is not the gospel. It's not a social gospel. Compassion doesn't save because then it would just be another good work that would earn our way and Jesus doesn't let it be that. In talking about how to have eternal life, he first centers it on that we are loved by God and love God in return with everything we have. And that mercy that we're now going to show to others, that compassion, started with an action from God on our behalf. And so, our mercy is initiated and motivated by God's mercy to us. And that's why there could be an expectation in in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes when Jesus would say something like, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Well, that's not a, that's not a if you do this and that. It, this, is, this is the reality of the Christian life. If you've come into the kingdom of God, if you're a child of God, blessed are the merciful, they'll be shown mercy. God loves to show mercy to his children because at first that mercy has been planted in us. It's reciprocating. And so compassion isn't the gospel. But yet, when we know the gospel and how it's changed us, then that compassion motivates us. We see it as a privilege to be known as a child of God and to look like our compassionate Father in bending that love to other people. And it's easy sometimes to confuse the two and judge ourselves by our level of compassion as if that is the sum and substance of whether God loves us or whether we're truly saved. No, it's an expression of it. It's a work that proves the faith that would say, okay, how, I mean, what is it? I know sometimes in my life, I mean, even writing, thinking about this sermon, 
I just had to step back and reflect and say, Adam, I mean, here you're going to preach and try to motivate to compassion. When's the last time out of a love for Christ, motivated by what God has done for you in the gospel, that you have shown some compassion? And I I had to stare into the Word of God and let it look back at me and ask me that question. Not to prove that I'm a Christian, but to say, Adam, I mean, if you really cherish the goodness of God and the gospel towards you and the mercy he's shown you. Shouldn't this be showing up somewhere? And, and you know, in my life, my opportunities are tailored towards me because it's in this story, not who I'm tailoring my compassion towards. It's that I'm the neighbor that has opportunity all around me, which brings us to our second observation. First was compassion started with an action from God to us, but the second motivation is compassion continues into action towards others. Mercy is motivated by opportunity in front of us. And it's all around us. This is the beauty of this story. Because it was all about how the neighbor responded. How the Samaritan saw there was a need and he fulfilled it. He wasn't looking for the person. But as God is sovereign and brings opportunities in our paths, he responded out of what? A heart of compassion in verse 33. And that's the wonderful thing about a week like Outreach Week, but any week as a believer is God has opportunity all around us to show compassion to other people. It's a matter of, am I so sensitive, aware, walking in the Spirit, filled with the love and joy that Christ brings in my life, the opportunities to show compassion and to bend that love toward others, really, I'm just eager to take. If it's on God's sovereign calendar to bring me an opportunity, it should be on mine. I think we learn a lesson, a sub-lesson about the action we have towards others that we don't schedule compassion. And yet, being real, it's a lot easier to try to schedule it. It's easy for me to say, you know what? You know when it's time for me to be compassionate? When I go to my Bible study or when I go and volunteer my time at said, you know, nonprofit. I mean, I could schedule it in and, and feel good about myself, and rightly so. The act in itself was fine. But when I find myself not having enough margin in my life to help somebody in need, there's a problem there. And I would venture to say it's not because I'm so crazy busy. It's just that I'm, I, I've become callous to needs. Because I'll always make time for the things that matter to me. I mean, things that truly matter to me and matter to you, you'll drop what you're doing at the, anytime. You know, when somebody you love and care for and you have that natural compassion towards calls you up and says, can you help me out? You're not like, let me check my calendar and see if I could help you out. It it just erupts in us that, oh, that person's in need. I need to answer that call. And it's not a matter of, well, let me see if it works with my schedule. So we learn that in this story, this Samaritan who was on a journey, I think a sub-lesson there is, look, he just felt compassion and he sprung into action. Sure, he had somewhere to go. Sure, he had some oil and wine that he probably could have used somewhere else. Uh, He had some money that he spent on this man. But he said, you know what? It it could be used to, now. I'm going to use it on this guy. It's needed right now. And if I believe that God provided this sovereignly, I'm going to respond. I think the second sub-lesson in this is that Compassion is unbiased. It's not based on whether we like the person or not. It's simply an illustration that loving our neighbor is done to whoever God gives us to, uh, to do this to whenever the opportunity comes. Luke 6, 36, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Whoever and whenever, we're ready to respond with compassion. 
Love for God produces genuine love for people. And as you think about this week and, and the great reminder of the gospel and, and taking that forward, also think about there could just be a, a great number of opportunities just to have your heart tuned to the string of compassion, to say, you know what? Oh, that opportunity in front of me, yeah, that's it. And I'm kind of eager and waiting for God to bring it. And I think like many things in life, when I am praying for opportunity, God is not a stingy father in heaven saying, you know what? I'm going to make Adam wait a week and see how bad he really wants to tell somebody about Christ. I'll let him wait two weeks to really respond to somebody in compassion. If I'm praying for opportunity, when I think of Paul at the end of Ephesians saying, hey, pray for me that I would have boldness, he was presupposing opportunity was there. The fields were ripe for the harvest. So I would encourage you just as a practical way to apply this, start praying now. What opportunities is God going to bring you this week to respond in compassion? Whether that's in sharing the gospel with somebody or serving in a church with fellow brothers and sisters to say, hey, there looks like a need here that I could sign up for. All motivated by the great privilege it is to be a Christian, to have been saved, to know God, to follow his commands and express our love for God and our love for other people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity we've had to see in a very simple way that our compassion is motivated first by your love and mercy towards us as we bend that out towards others. We're thankful, Father, for this story. We're thankful for and an opportunity that Jesus took to redirect this lawyer's thinking, that everything that he might have thought that was good about him, that story turned on its head, that it's not who we assume to be the righteous person that does the righteous deed. And when I look at my own life, Father, I realize that there was no righteousness in me that you saw initially to respond to. You saw the wretch that I was. And in pulling me out of my sin and out of my darkness and bringing me into the glorious light of knowing your Son and having eternal life, Father, that that would motivate me and that would motivate all of us to spring forth into compassionate action. I pray for this week as we sing now to close that you would seal these truths to our minds and they would make their way to our hearts so that we would be changed by your Spirit's power. We pray in Christ's name.